Let's pray before we jump in. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you send your Spirit amongst us and we pray that your Spirit is at work in our hearts, helping us love your Son Jesus more and helping us see the world anew. Amen. We don't always see what happens in front of our eyes. There's quite a famous experiment. It's called the Selective Attention Test. You might have seen it on YouTube. And it's a short video that involves six different people. There are three people dressed in black and three dressed in white. And your task as the watcher of the video is to look at how many, count how many passes are made between the, the people wearing white. They're passing a basketball to each other, and you've just got to count how many passes that they've made in the time. It's a really easy job and, um, to do, and so when the video finishes and it says they passed the basketball 15 times, you're like, yep, that was easy. What's this experiment testing? And then it asks the question, but did you see the gorilla? 50% of people who try this experiment out miss the gorilla completely. They're counting the passes, and the gorilla, a person dressed in a gorilla suit, walks through them, and they just totally miss it. I, um, I didn't miss the gorilla, partly because I wasn't actually counting. I was not, not giving my attention to the video. So I just saw this gorilla. I'm like, hmm, there's a gorilla. And then, and then I asked, did you see the gorilla? I'm like, oh, I get it. Okay. Um, the people who who thought of the experiment said, we think we see ourselves in the world as they really are, but we're actually missing a whole lot. We think we see ourselves in the world the, the way it actually is, but we're missing a whole lot. Uh, there's a fascinating book that was written by a guy called Isaac Lidsky. Sorry, that's a gorilla, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so now you can't perform the test because you know there's a gorilla and you'll see it every time. Uh, sorry about that. There is um, a book called Eyes Wide Open, and the guy who wrote this book began to lose his sight at age 13 and lost it completely when he was 25. And in the process, this slow process of losing his vision, it taught him that there are layers to perception. When you have full sight, it's, it's really easy to make a direct link to, to assume what you're seeing is just reality. But he realized that he learned that Incoming stimuli is sorted into categories according to your assumptions. When the old categories you have and the untested assumptions that you have aren't adequate for the new information, then you won't see reality. There are layers to perception. And so he says in the book, you must keep a vigilant watch for your self-limiting assumptions. That's like his main thing. You must keep a watch for your, of your self-limiting assumptions. For example, I, I had to sit through a pre-learner course when I went for my scooter uh, learner's test before that, before the scooter learner's test. And as I was sitting there, the, the, the teacher described how whenever we scoot past a car that's stationary at a T-intersection, so the car's stationary here and we scoot past, and they're looking to turn right, 
we need to be really careful because the, the car driver makes two assumptions. They assume that they're looking for a car when they're sort of scanning left and right to see if they can turn. And also, they assume if, they, if it's not a car, like a truck or, or, or something, they'll see it. Those are two assumptions that are self-limiting. So apparently, it's quite common for riders to, to be driving down um, in front of these cars, and these cars just turn out, um, in, turn in front of the, the motorcycle riders or the scooter riders, and the, the riders actually report the drivers looking directly at them. So they're like, okay, they see me, I can keep going. But they don't actually see. And so when the drivers say, I didn't see them, they're actually telling the truth. Even though they looked at the, the rider, they, they actually didn't see the rider. It's fascinating. Our self-limiting assumptions limit our view, our vision in the world. Helen Keller, quite a famous author and political activist and the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts, she says, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. The passage before us is all about seeing properly. And it turns out that Jesus can open up our eyes to see the world properly. And when you can see properly, you can live properly. Really simple. So let's jump into the passage. Verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So if you've been reading the gospel, you're immediately suspicious when you read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Last chapter, they were called by Jesus blind guides. These guys don't see. And when they come to test him, we should be even more suspicious. These uh, Pharisees and Sadducees have heard about or s s saw Jesus feed 5,000 and 4,000, uh, heal the lame, the mute, and the blind. They've seen that Jesus calm the storm. They've seen sign after sign after sign. And now they're coming to Jesus. And the key thing is, is that they're not actually seeking evidence here. They're seeking to test Jesus. And Jesus answered, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus is saying to them that they're not seeing what is in front of their eyes. They have sight. They can interpret the, the weather but they can't see the signs of the times, what's happening directly before them. Like I said, the Pharisees have seen what Jesus has been doing, but they're not perceiving. It's not getting in. And it's because they have categories and assumptions that don't fit reality. They were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting one that would be like them as scrupulous with the law as they were, and someone who would overthrow the Roman oppressors. They had categories and expectations, assumptions that didn't fit reality. And so when the Messiah, who we learn from the Gospels is more than a Messiah, is standing before them, they just don't see. So Lidsky in his book said, we must keep a vigilant watch for our self-limiting assumptions, if only the Pharisees were so careful about their self-limiting assumptions. 
but I think it's worth stopping just for a second to, to wonder if there are self-limiting assumptions that we hold about Jesus that might be keeping us from seeing Jesus as who he really is. Because I really think there are some assumptions that we hold that keep us from seeing Jesus as who he is. For instance, there's a lot of pressure in the world to keep Jesus or religion to our private lives. We can assume that Jesus is for private spirituality. And that's an assumption that just doesn't fit the reality. It's comfortable to keep Jesus and religion private, but it just can't be done. If Jesus is the, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who is king of the world, lord of the world, that's a big claim. If that's true, that's a public truth. And that means our, our faith can't be kept private if we really know who he is, the bones in our body will want to, to make it known that he is king. And he's a king we all want. We'll talk about that in a second. But he is king. And our, our lives need to be expressions of the fact that we follow him. It's a public truth. I think that's one assumption we can hold, that he's, he's for our private lives, that can limit our vision of who he is. A second one, I think, that can limit our vision of who he is is that he's actually not all that powerful. I think this is one maybe for the, the follower of Jesus who's been following for a long time and is just losing sight of his power. He is Lord of the world. Through him, all things came into existence. You were created by him and for him. This is God in the flesh. He is so powerful. But we can so often, sort of in the, in the day-to-dayness of life, we can lose sight of that. And I suppose in our praying faithfully, we can begin to think maybe he's not going to answer the prayers in the way that we want. And we just begin to think maybe he's just not all that powerful. Maybe he hasn't got the power to work in our lives as we thought he might and in the lives of those around us our assumptions begin to shape our vision and we begin to lose sight of how powerful he is. But the thing about the Canaanite woman from last week, if you remember the Canaanite woman, and the thing about the blind and the mute and the sick who come to Jesus, they get Jesus right. Remember the Canaanite woman? Lord, son of David. That's exactly right. Lord, son of David, have mercy. They get him right, but the Pharisees were blind. That was my first point, the blindness of the Pharisees. But what is the root of blindness? Okay, so we're going we're to go deeper. Okay, so at one level, the, the, the cause of the, the Pharisees' blindness was their, their holding on to categories and assumptions that weren't correct. But it goes deeper, and Jesus wants us to go deeper. So it brings us to the next part of the passage. This is quite a confusing sort of episode, and it's Sort of comical as well. So, um, just after this conversation that Jesus has with the Sadducees and Pharisees, he goes into a boat with his disciples, and the disciples realize that they don't have bread. <laughs> There's no bread on the boat. But then Jesus says this. He says, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples had bread on their minds, and so when he mentions yeast, they're like, wait a second, is he referring to the fact that we don't have bread in the boat? One commentator writes, the disciples here 
appear inordinately dense. That was, that was worth including, I thought. Um, uh, Jesus, watching them talk amongst themselves, wondering if he was talking about not having bread, he says, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves and, uh, and the 5,000 and how many basketfuls were gathered at the end? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered at the end? They're the ones who are gathering the overflow of bread after the feedings and they've forgotten that Jesus can provide bread. You don't need to worry about bread. But then he says again, verse 11, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he said that twice, the exact same words. And then it concludes at the end of the passage, they understood that he was not talking about uh, the, the yeast used in bread, but the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Just to be clear, if you weren't sure about that. So the yeast here is very important. He said it twice, we need to be careful of this. So, so what is it? What is this yeast that Jesus is referring to? It's really important that we get it right. Uh, and one reason it's really important is because if you've baked bread, you know that yeast, a little bit of yeast, affects the whole dough. I made some pizza dough last night and I just put seven grams of yeast in and four cups of flour. And the whole thing was, was leavened, is that a word? I don't even know, by the yeast. Uh, and that's a good thing for bread, but Jesus is using it negatively here. That's not a good thing to be yeasted, um, according to Jesus. <laughs> I'm just making up words as I go. Um, so I think a, a maybe a more modern category here is, is cancer. Cancer also um, spreads, or it can spread rapidly, and it, it kills. And so I think it's fair to say that the yeast that Jesus is referring to here is cancer for our souls. That's quite a big thing. So it's important. We get a hint of what he's referring to um, in verse 12. He says, uh, or it concludes, the, the yeast is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the teaching of the um, Pharisees and Sadducees. But that doesn't help heaps. What is it about their teaching that is so dangerous? And so I had time this week to ponder about this. I wasn't sure what he was referring to. And then I remembered Jesus' scathing words to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 23. So I'll put them on the screen. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but have swallowed a camel. And so the whole chapter is scathing. Whatever the yeast is, whatever this teaching is, the outcome of it is a focus on the small at the expense of the large. So they're focusing on cumin and, and mint, and spices, and giving a tenth to the Lord. They're focusing on these tiny things, but they're missing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's a huge problem. And their teaching is a significant cause of that. I don't know if you know, but um, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees, they taught, um, I think it's called the Tenach, 
It's, it's a whole volume of literature that, that is a list of laws, not the God-given laws of the Old Testament, but the laws to protect the God-given laws of the Old Testament. So they'd, they'd, they'd created a massive sort of volume of laws to fence the Old Testament itself. So they were so focused on the details. So they'd never even get close to stumbling on God's law. They focused on the details of life and were forgetting the main things. I think the yeast is focusing or I think the yeast is anything that causes us to focus on the small at the expense of the large. And when you do that, when you focus on the small at the expense of the large, you lose your field of vision. So there's not much else you can concentrate on if you're constantly focusing on tithing your mints. That takes a lot of attention. They're missing a lot. They're missing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They're missing. They're not seeing because of this focus on the small. They're not seeing the Messiah when he stands before them. That's a big miss. And we're going to go deeper. Their loss of sight isn't just their teaching, but it is a result of the heart. Now, this is a common theme in the gospel. Jesus always goes back to the heart. The reason their words aren't healthy, the reason their teaching and traditions aren't healthy, is because it's coming from an unhealthy heart. The heart is the driver within us. It's the great driver. It's the wellspring of life. It's what causes you to display the fruit in your lives that you do. It comes from your heart. And the problem that they have, this focus on the small at the expense of the large, is a heart problem. So we're going deeper. We're going to look at the heart. So if we're going to fix this problem, we need to get to the heart. Um, before continuing, before we sort of talk about how we can see again, we've gone from blindness to the root of blindness to seeing again. In Mark's Gospel, there's also... Uh, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees moment. And just after the, the warning that Jesus gives to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, a blind man is healed. He's the blind man who, who got touched twice by Jesus. He first saw sort of hazy trees and then got touched again and saw clearly. So Mark chapter 8, verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes then his eyes were opened, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. It's as if Mark is saying, you avoid the yeast and you'll be able to see. But if it's a heart problem, and when I say it's a heart problem, I think it's better to say this is a love problem. I think that makes more sense. It's a love problem. Um, when you love small things with a lot of love, and you love big things with little love, that's what I mean by heart problem. It's an out-of-ordered love problem. And that's what this comes down to, this, this not being able to see. Ultimately, it comes down to a heart problem, a love problem. And we're going to focus on a detail in verse 4. So verse 4, I think, is really important. So this is in response to the, the Pharisees and Sadducees asking for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. It's sort of cryptic, but I think it's really important. In chapter 12, 
Jesus fleshes out what he means by the sign of Jonah. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea creature, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This tells us, or this, this, this sign of Jonah is, is cryptic for two things. It's first of all telling the extent of God's love. He will go down into the earth and rise again. He will die. This is the future of Jesus. He will die and rise. And that's an expression of his love enacted on behalf of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and everyone. It's an expression of his love. But also, it's a warning. You see, Jonah, he was sent to the Ninevites, the Gentiles. And he had one message for them, and it was, in 40 days, your city will be destroyed. That was his message for them. It was a warning. He didn't even say turn to God, but it was a warning that they needed to turn to God. And Jesus is saying here, I'm giving you a warning. The Ninevites, they turned at the, the, the word of, of Jonah. And the question is, will the Pharisees hear him? Will they hear the warning, the sign of Jonah? This is a warning. Will they hear the warning and will they turn? Turn from their corrupt, hypocritic, hypocritic ways. It's a warning. But this is where the heart comes into it. Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. Jonah was pretty disobedient. He wasn't a very impressive prophet. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He is where the love expression of that, that cryptic sign, the sign of Jonah, and the warning come together. Jesus is where they come together. Jesus didn't just warn of judgment. He bore judgment. And he didn't just announce God's mercy and love. He enacted it. By dying in our place on the cross, and leading us through to new life, resurrection life. He is the one greater than Jonah. And the challenge for the Pharisees and Sadducees, who would have heard this and probably not understood it, to be honest, the challenge was, would they see what he's saying? If you see what, who Jesus is, that he lived and died and rose... For us, that, he, that God in Christ gave Himself for us so that we might live. When you see that, if you see that, the loves of your heart grab onto it. And if the loves of your heart latch onto Jesus, you're loving the big thing with hopefully big love. And when you put Christ first in your heart, King in your heart, Lord of your heart, then all your loves will fall into line. They'll find order again. You'll love the big things a lot, God himself. You'll love the medium things a medium amount. And you'll love the small things a small amount. Jesus reorders our hearts. That's what he does. And when your heart is reordered, you start to see things clearly again. This is where it comes back to sight. When your heart is reordered, Jesus on top, you'll walk through life and you'll see people make money and you might be tempted yourself to make money. 
But you'll realize, you'll see that money and career is always a medium thing. It's never a big thing. And so you'll be able to put medium love towards that. You won't be captured by that. Your heart's already captured with Christ. And so you can either walk by it, if that's what's right for you to do at the time, walk by that temptation, or you can, you know, earn the money and thank God for it and then give it away because you're not so attached by it to other people, to bless other people. When your loves are right, you see the world rightly. When you love Jesus first, you'll love justice a lot because Jesus is about justice. He's about mercy and faithfulness. You won't get that wrong. You can't love Jesus and not love justice. And when you love Jesus, I mean, I could just go through anything. You'll, you won't be tempted to, to keep up with the Joneses. That's a small thing. But a big thing, if you love Jesus, is, for instance, gathering together. Gathering together with people who have been washed by the blood of Christ, whose life was spent by Christ so that they could be redeemed. You'll see that and be like, wow. These people are infinitely valuable. You'll love gathering together. You'll see it as a big thing because this is the one place in the world where you come together to, to, to seek to love Jesus more. In the world, it's so easy to lose love for Christ and get distracted, but our, our coming together is meant to be a place where our hearts, again, are, 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 are directed again to Jesus. And we together praise him. And remind each other that he is the biggest thing. When you get Jesus right, you'll live right, you'll see right. And whenever a blind person receives their sight from Jesus, they rejoice. Because seeing is such a great thing. When you see right, you can live right. You're free to live. Jesus offers freedom. Let's thank God. Father, we thank you so much that in Jesus, you expressed to us who you are, the depth and extent of your love. 